Today we're going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. We've studied these seven verses together, taking the first six verses in our first teaching where Peter addressed the wives, and then the seventh verse in our second teaching where Peter addressed the husbands. Uh, but Peter has been talking to us as Christians who are living as exiles in the world that we live in. And so I thought it would be wise to go back into this passage together to think about as exiles, as Christians, how are Christians who would like to be married one day supposed to date? So let's read our passage again together. 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, for many, the dating world feels a bit like the movie 1917 a story about two young British soldiers in World War I who carried an urgent message through enemy territory. Uh, they were given a few basic supplies, directions, and a pat on the back before heading out into bullets and bombs and booby traps. Danger lurked at every turn. It was a constant game of survival, and many believers feel the dating world is the same way. The need for good biblical counsel becomes more acute when we consider the terrible advice circulating among the masses. People are told to follow their hearts, date for fun, try recreational romance, live together before marriage, and look out for themselves all while learning strategies to manipulate, deceive, and play at the dating game. But dating is not meant to be a fun stage of life. It is more akin to a job interview to discover if you should get the job, if you should get married. Marriage is where the fun is. So the stakes, brothers and sisters, are high. You do not want to marry a bad person. You do not want your fellow church member to marry a bad person. You do not want the pain and destruction that marrying a bad person causes, sometimes for generations. You don't want this to happen to you or someone you love or anybody in the body of Christ. This is why I want the whole church to hear this message today. Even if we're not single, I hope we can all become more competent to counsel, to advise, to support our unmarried brothers and sisters in Christ. I should point out that dating is not the only alternative to marriage. Just because someone is unmarried doesn't mean that they ought to actively pursue getting married. The Bible is clear 
in that it constantly upholds and honors the single life. Jesus, the center point of scripture, was unmarried, and so were many of the greatest believers who ever lived. Some, though, will choose the single life because of this as a way to glorify God. Some people in this camp are divorced and have concluded that for them, remarriage in their situation would be unbiblical. Some have a romantic or sexual desire that they recognize is out of step with God's design and with Holy Scripture. Same-sex attraction, for instance. So people like this choose singleness instead of disobedience to God. Some, as was the case with Paul the Apostle, become convinced that they could make the greatest impact on God's kingdom by remaining unmarried. But even though this is the case, many others are open to the idea of marriage if the right person comes along. So since the stakes are high, since popular wisdom is so bad, and since many would like to one day marry, I thought it would be wise to pause on this passage, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, which we read already, to mine it for principles that apply to the dating world. Peter has said a lot to wives and husbands in this passage, but there's a lot that would help a single believer navigate the battlefield of dating in this text. So today we're going to observe three major observations. Number one, if you are in this camp, you want to be married, you should date someone that you can follow if you're a woman or that you can lead if you're a man. Number two, you should look for lasting attractiveness. And number three, you should find a Jesus person. Let's think about these three things together. Number one, firstly, date someone you can follow if you're a woman or lead if you're a man. All through the passage, Peter tells wives in the church to be subject to, submit to, and even obey is a word that he uses, uh, their husband. These are stringent words, and we've spent a lot of time thinking about them over the last couple of weeks. Now, the wives and the husbands that Peter wrote to, they were already married. So they were obliged, as Christians, to heed the apostolic words. But if you're unmarried right now, you have a decision to make. First, ask yourself if you really want to be married with directions like we read in these seven verses. Then, if you're a woman, ask yourself if you're willing to follow a man's lead. And if you're a man, ask yourself if you are ready for that position of leadership. If you're open to fulfilling the role that God's word lays out for you, then I want you to carry this perspective into the dating world. The second you, if you're a woman, realize that you would not want to follow the guy that you're dating, you need to end the relationship. And the second you, if you're a man, realize that you could not lead the woman that you're dating, you need to end the relationship. Women should only date men that they could eventually follow in marriage, and men should only date women they could eventually lead in marriage. Now, if you're a woman, there are some great questions that you can ask that are based on our 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 passage. These questions can help you determine if you could follow a particular man. So let's think about them for a moment. If wives are called to follow, then if you married the guy that you're dating, 
you will be called to follow him. He would need, in other words, to lead you. So right now, how does the guy you're dating lead his own life? Is he a man who demonstrates self-control? Does he work hard? Does he work full-time? How does he spend his money? Can he save? Does he budget? Does he earn? And this is a big one, but does he submit to the authority that's already in his life? Does he have any accountability? Is he mentored? If he's not following someone else's lead, it's likely because he has systematically removed all outside influences so that he can be the Lord of his own life. Run away from that kind of man. Another thing that women should be thinking about is that how Peter told husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. So does the man that you're dating understand you? And when he doesn't, and he inevitably won't at times, is he good at asking questions? Is he good at listening? Is he good at talking as a way to learn where you are coming from? A lot of young couples get all starry-eyed about their relationship and don't realize until it's too late that they are incapable of working through conflict. Now, another thing that a woman should be thinking of is how Peter told husbands to honor their wives. So right away, a woman should ask, is he honoring me right now? Does he honor women right now? Does he pressure you to compromise your walk with God? Does he consume pornography? Does he treat women with respect and dignity? Does he have healthy female friendships? These are great questions for the woman to ask. Now, if you're the man, Peter gives some statements that will help you ask questions as well. Peter said that believing wives need to follow the leadership of their husbands. So you can find out if the woman that you're interested in submits to authority in her life right now. Does she constantly rail against her employer or her professors or other authority figures? Does she live within her means, the authority of what her finances or bank tells her she can do? Does she have a mentor, someone pouring into her life? Does she have any forms of accountability? Does she serve in her local church? These are great questions. But Peter also told the wives to adorn themselves with internal beauty. So right now, you can find out if she's a person of character and godliness, that internal beauty that Peter valued. Does she fear God today? Is she primarily concerned with external beauty? What does she do to cultivate inner grace, strength, and obedience to Christ? How is she pursuing spiritual growth? Does she care more about Jesus than she cares about you or anyone or anything else? These are great questions for the man to ask. Now, in asking these questions, I recognize that many people become so drunk with infatuation that they really have a hard time intelligently answering a lot of these questions. I call it falling in like. And when you fall in like, you can easily tell yourself that the person that you're dating is so godly, so inwardly gorgeous, so perfect. I've heard women talking about dudes who don't have jobs and go to church three times a year like they are the second coming of Christ. This is infatuation. So because of this, when you're asking these questions, you've got to use your community 
to answer these questions. If you have believing friends, if you have a network of Christian fellowship, if you're in a life group, if you have young and old saints in your life, you are well set up to answer these questions together with your community. With wisdom and grace, others can help you see reality more clearly. And you've got to listen to their advice, got to listen to their counsel, especially if they're godly people. You've got to use your community. Okay, all this said, I need to point out a danger. In our modern time, marriage is often thought of as a capstone to life. What this means is that many people think of marriage as something that you do after you've accomplished a billion other things. After you get all of your degrees in your education, after you start and build your career for a while, after you begin earning six figures, after you buy your first house, after you get out of all debt, then the capstone comes, you're finally ready, and you can get married. But marriage used to be thought of as a cornerstone in life. And in societies where sex outside of marriage and cohabitation are frowned upon, marriage is still seen this way. People get married younger in societies like those, and they build a life together. And I want to point this out for two reasons. First, we should not be too demanding while investigating whether or not we want to marry someone. And second, I'm trying to highlight character and godliness because people of high character and growing godliness will usually turn out well as the years tick by. Character is an early indicator of how life and marriage would go and that you can build a life with this person because they are submitted to God. All right, the second major point that I'd like to draw out from our passage is that you should be looking for lasting attractiveness. Uh, Peter told the wives to adorn themselves with an inner beauty that will never fade away. Uh, this reminds us of Proverbs 31, verse 30, which says, charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. Now, physical attraction is often the thing that gets a new relationship started. Not always, but often. But we should be people, as Christians, who do not give in to the lie that outward appearance is as important as our society would have us believe. Marriage, listen to me now, marriage is so much more than physical attraction. When Christina and I began dating, I was attracted to her outward appearance, and I'm still attracted to her outward appearance today, and marriage has been great. But there are are a lot of reasons that it's been great, and most of them have nothing to do with how she looks. For instance, when we have a disagreement, it's her character and her wisdom and her humility that help us solve the conflict, not how pretty she is. It's her discipline and contentment that help us stay on our financial budget. It's her grace and willingness to learn and serve that make her an incredible mother. It's her godliness and her love for the gospel that gives her the grace to put up with me. It's her humor and love of life that makes spending time with her so enjoyable. As I said, marriage is so much more than physical attraction. But this is what 
the world you're living in wants you to believe, that beauty is everything. This pitfall leads to such heartache as people leave and hurt and reject one another in the pursuit of external appearance. I think it's a part of the reason why cohabitation is such a popular option amongst so many people today. They cohabitate waiting for someone more beautiful, more handsome, more attractive externally to come into their lives. Believing men and women, though, should work hard to embrace a different value system. Become attracted to character, to godliness, to internal beauty. And if someone godly and single is interested in you, maybe you should give them a chance. Now, this is probably as good a place as any to talk about online dating apps and services. You know, most people I know who have used them felt like they were a necessary evil, a means to an end, but not the ideal. And though many of us would prefer to meet someone in person and get to know them as friends first, many people will have happy stories of meeting their spouse online. So there are some things to remember. First, please recognize that not all dating apps and services are created equal. I'm trying to tell you in this point that I'm making that you should look for lasting attractiveness. But many apps are designed to exclusively judge outward appearances. But people are so much more than how they look, so don't fall into the trap of apps like these. Second, you've got to be wise and cautious. People can say anything they want to online. Not everyone who marks Christian as their religion is a Jesus-loving, gospel-believing, spirit-filled Christian. Uh, They might just click Christian because they attended Catholic elementary school or something like that. Third, you must involve your community. It's way easier to deceive one person than a group of people. Get your friends and your family involved if you meet someone online. Let them help you discern who and what you're really dealing with. Now this whole exhortation that I'm making in this second point to look for lasting attractiveness, it's a delicate exhortation. You know, nobody wants to feel like they're not externally or outwardly attractive to the person that's pursuing them. And in our society especially, one that puts so much emphasis on style over substance, we can easily become offended at the idea of prioritizing internal beauty. You know, we might ask, like, am I supposed to date someone that has no external appeal to me? If I don't find them outwardly attractive, am I supposed to ignore that and simply wonder if they have a good devotional life? Uh, Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I don't expect to overturn thousands of years of human behavior. Physical attraction exists, and it's not going away anytime soon. God is about it. He's the one that made us that way. My point is that you should not overvalue or emphasize it when dating. Try your best to value the internal person. As Peter said, the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty. Now, throughout the entire passage, Peter hints at our third and final exhortation. When dating, you should find a Jesus person. Peter expected everyone in the church, in this paragraph that we read earlier, to be submissive 
like Jesus. Uh, Peter valued respect, the fear of God, and pure conduct. He emphasized the hidden person of the heart. He emphasized holy living. He thought believers should be praying people, loving, and serving. All this helps us know that we should look for a Jesus person. I speak from experience. You know, being married to a passionate Jesus follower makes life manageable, purposeful, and exciting. It makes romance last and deepen over time. It preserves passion and desire. It creates solid ground from which to operate a relationship and a family. And with Jesus as the love and Lord of our lives, marriage gets better and better with age. I wanted to highlight this point because I know many people make a wish list when they're dating. Some people write the list, others never speak it out loud. You might tell your friends and your family about it, or you might keep it private. You might think hard about it, or you might subconsciously have one, but everyone has a list. But your list should be shredded in favor of this one beautiful, all-important characteristic. If you find someone who has Jesus as their king, if they love and fear and serve him, they are an amazing person. And many other things on your list might need to bow in subservience to the quality of their allegiance to Christ. They might not be tall, but if Christ is their king, they're a baller. You see, when a person has Jesus as their Lord, the deal breakers of things like addiction or anger or infidelity, they just won't even be present in that person's life. When Jesus is their prime pursuit, they will continually grow and transform to become more like him. And when Jesus is their passion, love and grace and patience and kindness will increasingly flow from their lives. You see, looking for a Jesus person is so much better than looking for someone with whom you'd be compatible. You might be from the same financial background. You might have the same perspectives about family You might have the same goals in life, but if they don't love Jesus more than they love you, run away. And don't mishear me. I'm not saying that you should find someone who only identifies as Christian. Far too many people, this title means nothing in their lives. It has nothing to do with pursuing and following Jesus. Some people think that to be Christian means that they're merely politically conservative or that they go to church every once in a while, or that they were raised by religious parents. But you're not looking for a nominal Christian, but someone who has been so lit on fire by the fame of Christ that they are willing to bow and surrender to him in every area of their lives. They won't follow him perfectly, but submitting to Christ will be the driving focus of who this person is. And to me and to the Bible, it's this or nothing. Don't compromise here. Believers are only allowed to marry other believers. The Bible also says that we are to yoke ourselves with other Christ followers, and there is no greater yoke, no greater human connection than marriage. If someone like this doesn't come along, do not compromise. It's not worth it. Stay allegiant 
to Jesus. Let him be your constant companion. Trust him and wait. So when you date someone, listen to who they are. As they talk about their life and their values, is there any intersection at all with God's kingdom? Are they only about the natural realm, the temporal, about money and career and success and play and hobbies and interests? Or are they about Jesus? Though time will tell, here are some questions to help you learn more quickly if this person has Christ as their king. Let me give you some. Number one, you should ask, how did you come to Christ? Now, does this question sound too personal to you? Well, for a believer, it's not too personal. It's one of the most exciting questions in the world. It might be personal, but we rejoice to speak of the day when Jesus came into our lives and saved us from our sin. And if a person cannot articulate their salvation story, though they might become a believer one day, they probably don't know the Lord yet. Number two, ask this. What church do you belong to? By hearing about the church that they go to, you can do a little research. You could look up their church online. You could read their belief statement. You could listen to a recent sermon. You could see if it seems like a healthy and doctrinally strong fellowship. You know, if they mention a church that's not a Christian church, run away. If they say they're still looking for a church, but have lived in the area for more than six months, run away. Chances are they don't go to church at all. As I said already, you aren't looking for someone who casually identifies as Christian, but someone who lives it out. Here's another question. What's the name of your pastor, and what's he teaching through? These questions will help you determine the level of engagement that this person has with their local church. If they can't quickly recall the name of their pastor, or even what the pastor is currently teaching, they might be putting you on. It's such a basic element of Christianity to have a local church and to get into his word. So if they struggle to know who their pastor is or what the recent sermon series is about, they likely aren't very engaged with their church community. You know, for a married couple, one of their best friends is Sunday mornings, the Sunday weekend gathering, because sitting under the authority of the word together is helpful for married life. God speaks and leads and corrects and shapes during that time. If a prospective mate isn't already allowing this into their lives, how do you know they ever will? Number four, ask, who are some of your favorite authors and what are some of your favorite books? You see, in response to questions like these, if they never mention a solid Christian author or book, you should be cautious. A lack of interaction with solid Christian writing is a clue to their level of seriousness about their Christianity. On the other hand, if they mention different authors and books that are Christian, you should look them up. Are they books about the prosperity doctrine? Are they all about positivity in Christianity, focusing too much maybe on the quality of their faith? Or are they into scholarly authors and works? Are you doctrinally close to one another? Another question you can ask is, what is God teaching you right now? You see, the gospel paves the way for a personal relationship with God. He becomes our Father, and he resides within us by his Spirit. The separating veil, we say as believers, is torn in two from top to bottom, and we have total access to the throne of God. And as we walk with God, God teaches us. He corrects and shapes and encourages us. So perhaps this question will help you catch a glimpse 
of the vitality or lack thereof in the person you're dating's walk with God. Here's another question. Say, can we go to your church next Sunday? Go on a date to church. By sitting through a church service at their home church, you can learn a lot. Does anyone recognize them, for one? (laughs) Are they engaged in the worship and teaching? Do they seem prayerful? Are they welcoming to others? Is their church fluffy or serious, man-centered or God-centered? There's a lot of questions you can ask. You know, what kinds of shows or movies or podcasts do you like? Do you have a small group? Do you have a mentor? Do you serve at your local church? How so? What's one of your favorite books of the Bible? What's a favorite verse? What's your morning routine? Can I meet your friends? What do you think a disciple of Christ looks like? Would you ever want to be part of a church planning team? These are some of the questions you can ask to determine if you're dealing with a Jesus person. By the way, I must mention that one quick way to know that a person isn't a Jesus person is if they ever pressure you for sex. It's one thing to battle temptation together, and unmarried people should make sure they aren't in places where it would be easy to compromise. But it's another thing if the person you're dating thinks it's just fine to engage each other physically. This attitude is so contrary to obvious scripture that it makes it immediately obvious that Jesus isn't the Lord of their lives. Again, there is grace for temptation. The Lord meets us in our weakness, and he restores us in our sexual brokenness. But when a person just pursues it and wants to run in it, you got to run away from that relationship. All right, I want to end our time today with some practical advice, some some next steps. Let me close with a few exhortations. If you would like to be married one day, I want you to start by just trusting God with your future. God brought Eve to Adam, and he can take care of you if he plans for you to be married. Also, work on yourself. Become a person who can follow or a person who can lead. Develop your inner character, the hidden person of the heart. Become more of a Jesus person than ever before. Use your singleness for God's kingdom. And please know that this life is not the one with the fairy tale ending. You know, one day Jesus will return to earth and he's going to drive out all evil and all brokenness. At that point, tears will be no more. But in this life, we will pass through trials. This means that a believer's desire to be married is not a guarantee that it will happen. You have to trust him with this unfulfilled desire. Now, if you are dating someone and you realize that you cannot or will not marry them, break up and stop dating them. Be truthful and clear about the reasons why and own it as your own decision. Do not ghost them. That's what cowardly, unconverted, carnal people do. Be brave. Meet them in person if possible and kindly and gently but clearly and honestly end the relationship no matter how beginner or or introductory it was. If you've wronged them in any way, 
seek their forgiveness. Okay, but if you are dating someone, you might come to the opposite conclusion. You might realize that you want to marry them or that you're thinking about it. You're inclined in that direction. How will you know? Well, first, I hope I've made clear today in this teaching, there will be the witness of Scripture. They will be a Jesus person with whom you are equally yoked as a believer. There will be nothing disqualifying in their lives. And what I mean by that is there won't be violent anger, undealt with addiction, or ongoing sexual sin. Jesus' grace can cover all of that, but they need to get that dealt with for a long time before they're qualified to be married to you. But not only will there be the witness of Scripture, there will be an internal witness as well. You will want to do this. You'll want to move forward in life with them. But third, there will also be the witness of your people. Your people will agree with you. You must bring your group, your community, other believers like-minded into the process. You've got to consider their objections, especially if they're godly. Fourth, your spiritual leaders will also agree that marriage is a good idea. Mentors and pastors and life group leaders will all convey their excitement for you. And when you honestly ask them what they think, they will tell you that they can support you if you marry. And finally, fifth, a pre-marriage counseling program or class can help you uncover many issues that might prohibit marriage. A course like this will help you see if you're on the same page regarding subjects like beliefs, finances, family expectations, goals, sex, conflict, resolution, divorce, and parenting. Don't set a wedding date until after you've completed such a course and gotten the blessing of whoever led you through it. And try not to take it alone. In this era, you don't need to. There's so many ways to connect with someone else to lead you through that time of premarital counseling. See if that person thinks it's still a good idea once you've concluded the course to get married. Then, at that point, set a date. Now, one thing I haven't really talked about today is how to go about the process of actually beginning to date someone. My hope today is that I've taken a little bit of the mystery out of it for our brothers and sisters in Christ, in our fellowship and church. But I'm a man, and I believe based on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and the totality of Scripture that the man is supposed to be in the leadership role within a marriage, so it's good for a man to begin leading or initiating at the very beginning. A woman might want to indicate her interest, but it should be the man who takes the ball and runs with it. So because of that, here's my advice to the brothers. Become as godly as you can. Serve and love Jesus and deal with all major sins. After that, look around. And if you're the man, ask the godliest single woman that you can find out on a date. You don't need to get a limousine. You could just grab coffee if you need to keep it low profile. It's an investigation. You're looking into the possibility of a deeper relationship. All right, if you ask her and she says no, don't be weird about it. Take a breath and rejoice. You're still alive. 
you're not going to die. You'll be okay. Then after you take a little time to recover, you know, some weeks or months, don't just go to the next person in line down the church patio, but try again with the next godliest single woman that you can find. And if you go out and it goes okay, go out again if she's willing. Break things off clearly if you ever realize that you're not interested in her any longer and allow her to do the same. But if that doesn't happen, keep going out as much as you can and as much as you need to until you and your trusted advisors are able to determine that it would be good for you to get married. Then ask her to marry you, and maybe she will say yes.